Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues affecting Australia and its region. I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is produced at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Come and study with us. You can find out about our courses at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host for today's podcast, Bob Cotton. Bob is a visiting fellow here at the Crawford School. He's had an extensive career as an Australian diplomat in the Asia-Pacific region and has undertaken consultancy work for ANAO, DFAT, AusAid and many other Australian Commonwealth departments, all of which makes him the ideal host for today's podcast. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Sharon. It is great to be here for this discussion because we're looking at an issue that has been highly relevant to a lot of my own work in international policy. Today we're asking the question, how can we take this huge, complex global policy and make it useful and understandable at the local level? If that sounds a bit abstract, here's a tangible example. In 2016, the UN launched the Sustainability Development Goals, also known as SDGs, as a blueprint for global development. There are 17 of them which is a big number already, but these can be divided further into 169 targets. It's a big, complex policy, and it's important policy too, because the hope is for every country to achieve all of them by 2030. I remind myself that's only 12 years away. You can think of the SDGs as the world's blueprint for development, but while the goals and targets themselves might be the same for everyone, the way that different countries, cities and local communities go about building on this blueprint will be very different. This is something that also has a large bearing on some of your own work, Sharon, doesn't it? Yeah, I've been living and breathing the SDGs in in many ways, Bob, for the last couple of years, um, probably more than that. So I've been particularly focused in my work on goal one and goal five. So for those of you who don't know the SDGs intimately, that's the first goal, which is around uh, the eradication of poverty and goal five, which is around promoting gender equity um, and empowering women and girls around the world. So with my colleagues, I've been doing quite a lot of work around how we can measure poverty in a way that's sensitive to gender um, and also doing work around how we can measure and assess poverty in ways that respond to the priorities and experiences of children and young people. So I've been doing that work um, with a team of people um, in a number of countries, particularly in Indonesia, um, both on the individual deprivation measure, which is the gender-sensitive measure, and around childhood poverty. But as you say, Bob, the SDGs are incredibly complex. Um, we've, We've seen through the SDGs how much data we have around the world, but also how big the data gaps are on many, many issues. And some of the issues that are most important to track our progress around, we simply don't have good data around. 
But the other thing that's really interesting about the SDGs is while they set a global agenda, they aim to be taken up, responded to and progressed in the local context. And that's where it gets really interesting. And that's where, where it gets really exciting. And the SDGs have opened the way for a range of stakeholders, not just governments, not just development agencies, but a range of community groups of people young and old to get involved in promoting development. And under the SDGs, development is understood not as something that happens simply in those parts of the world that have lower incomes or measure um, as being underdeveloped on particular indicators, but it's around development globally and it's around sustainability globally. So it's really exciting. And of course, if we're thinking about sustainability, it's critical that we hear from the views of young people because it's young people who need to clean up the mess that has been left to them, but need to guide us forward into the future. So today, we're really fortunate to have four guests with us who are perfectly placed to tease out some of these really complex issues. We're going to be chatting with Ian Chambers from the Crawford School. Ian is Program Director of a pilot program aiming to help young people put the SDGs into action at the local level. That program is called The Young Person's Plan for the Planet, and it's a really great initiative. And joining Ian is an undergraduate student here at the ANU, Holly Halford-Smith. Holly is studying law and international security studies, and she's working with Ian to bring Plan for the Planet to life through a monthly broadcast from Questacon here in Canberra. And we're about to hear much more about that. Holly, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. We also have two of the people who are central to this whole program. We have um, two young people who are both high school students here in the ACT who are part of the program and helping to turn the sustainable development goals into something that makes sense and can be implemented in the local context. Zoe Malone of Radford. Of Bradford School. Hi Zoe. Thanks for having me. And Max Etherington from Brindabella High. Hi Thank Max. Oh, hi, it's a pleasure to be here. But before we get into that discussion, just a quick reminder that you can send any comments or feedback about this podcast or any of our podcasts. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Alternatively, you can always share your thoughts with us on Twitter, apps Policy Forum, or on Facebook where we are Asia-Pacific Policy Society. So let's start to hear a little bit about Plan for the Planet. Ian, to turn to you first, and before we start talking about Plan for the Planet program, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to begin this work um, around the Sustainable Development Goals and working with young people particularly. I originally was working in corporate, um, the corporate environment in Europe um, with some of the uh, largest corporates um, on the planet, um, and we were working with about 70 of the Fortune 100. And I became very interested in the application of the way corporates were running um, their organisations on the planet and whether we could actually apply some of those same principles to addressing issues like sustainability. So I linked up with a group in um, Oxford who asked me to actually develop that concept further and I ended up writing a book uh, with a co-author uh, called... Um, 
Let me see, John Humble. And um, that book was called Plan for the Planet, which took the original MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, and looked at how we could frame that in a business strategic planning framework and, um, and apply that, turn that into practice. That um, was published in about 2012, and Graham Durant, who is the director of Questacon, came across the book and approached um, ANU and myself. Um, I was here then doing my um, PhD and said, look, this would be great if we could teach these principles to students. And in our ongoing discussion, what we decided was that... Um, me standing in front of a whole lot of students saying this is how to do things was not a very good way of teaching anything. It would be much better if we the students could get involved in actually looking at how we could implement those strategic planning principles. Now, that sounds very complicated, but it's not. And I'll go through the types of principles we used further on. But we could implement those um, in schools. And so what we set up was a program whereby 20 schools across Australia, we divided it, Australia into 20. Um, so we call those eco-zones, so all different zones, one school per zone. And we asked a group of students, all volunteers, so um, Zoe and Max today were doing this all extracurricular. And the task for each of the students was to look at all of the SDGs, so all 17 of them, for their uh, particular region. And then what they had to do is allocate one SDG per student. That student then had to identify what was happening in their region and what needed to happen. So they were the two challenge-based learning tasks. Now, Max and Zoe will talk about how they went about that, and that was a whole lot of exploration. Um, we asked them then to go through a couple of fairly simple processes to write down the top uh, 10 of the things that were already happening under each SDG, under each zone. Then they had to prioritise those, a simple prioritisation matrix. Rate those out of 10. Uh, so we then had uh, scores on 20 items out of um, 20 and picked the top four. Why the top four? We used the Pareto principle, and Max will tell you a little bit about this, which is the 80-20 rule. We tackle the top 20% of issues and we'll probably hit 80% of the challenges. So we did that and then turned those four items into a very simple one-page business planning framework, objectives, strategies, actions, interconnectivities, and measures. And then the students built those, so the 17 of those one-page business plans, into a national plan and a plan for their region, um, which then became those 17 one-pages built together. And then this year, we're actually breaking that down at a state level. And that was then presented last year to at Parliament House to the Science Minister, Minister for Education. So now we're focusing on the communication of that. So that's a a little bit of a complex approach, but 
as Max and Zoe will probably explain, using those fairly, uh, let me say, straightforward principles, which are straight out of um, Business 101, we're able to take the complexity of the 17 goals, uh, address them in a a fairly straightforward uh, manner, prioritise them, and then build them into a national plan, uh, which has been very well received. So that's a quick summary of, um, let me see, from then till now. You know, I wonder if I could ask, what do you think success will start to look like for you with this program? Well, we have um, great grand global goals um, so that the concept of the program was to actually get schools in every country working together. So this year we've been able to link up with Mauritius. Last year's students are already mentoring this year's students. So both Zoe and Max are mentoring this year's students in their schools. We have our schools in Western Australia who are mentoring the students in Mauritius on how to run the program. They're just completing and they're now saying, who can we mentor? So we have a program whereby the students uh, learn how to go through this process and then how to actually teach other students. So the end goal in um, five years is 193 countries. So each year, um, schools then mentor other schools and other countries and we continually expanded out expand out so that we have the future generation actually planning the future. Are there any key lessons you'd like to tell us about at this stage of the program? Yes, there are. Um, I'll I'll capture just two of them, Bob, um, from my perspective. One is this was a test. So as you can imagine, even though we've used fairly straightforward corporate planning concepts um, with everything from the strategic planning approach to prioritisation to the Pareto principle. It was still a test of Zoe, of Max and all of the other 250 students. So there were a lot of students involved in this across 20 schools, across um, 20 regions. Um, It was a test as to whether Um, that was possible to take those concepts, take something as complex as the 17 SDGs and then translate that into a plan that everybody could understand and was implementable. And I think the outcome of that was that uh, Zoe, Max and the other 250 students absolutely nailed it, to use a technical term. Um, they far exceeded everybody's expectations. And, and I think the, um, the second real lesson um, that we're just starting to see now, because we've um, all the students completed a series of surveys at the beginning so we could test um, academically the impact of the uh, program over time. So that was there was a before and after, and we're just pulling those results together now. But what we're finding, um, and Max and I have talked about this and Zoe as well, is that there's a mind shift, um, a significant mind shift in the students from from the concept of this is too hard, it's too big, um, how on earth we, could we address something like sustainability on the planet to 
hold it, this can be broken down into a format that not only um, we can understand, but we can do something about. And that's very powerful if we think about the broader challenge we face on the planet, which is the biggest challenge is in fact getting everybody's mind around the fact that this is something we can do. It's not too big. It's not too overwhelming. It's something we can actually take on and address and deliver. Holly, I'd like to bring you in now. How did you get involved in this program? So I was actually connected to Ian through a friend based on my sort of past involvement and current actual involvement in with communities in sub-Saharan Africa um, and more specifically Kenya and Tanzania. So yeah, so I guess this friend sort of just introduced me to Anne who was at that sort of stage mainly just focusing on the Australian um, sort of sphere. There was sort of discussions on sort of expanding to Mauritius at that point but it hadn't quite happened then and so I ended up going over to Kenya, Tanzania and Zimbabwe again at the end of last year where we were then able to sort of introduce the program. And so how's it how's it beginning to develop in Kenya in Zimbabwe and in Tanzania. Is is there interest in the program there? Yeah, so the interest is very much there. The issue or barrier we're currently facing is more from a financial and funding perspective. But I mean, speaking with the students and the teachers and whatnot, you know, we would we ran sort of demo pilot sort of phases of it while I was over there. And you could just sort of see that sort of enthusiasm and I think it goes back to the whole you know, you think this is too big of an issue. Who am I? I'm just this young, insignificant being. But then you could sort of really see that mind shift change of, well, actually, I can do something. So that's exciting to see that happening in front of you. Yeah, most definitely. And were you working with high school students in those countries in in sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, so predominantly high school students. And what about for you personally? What is it about this program that makes, makes you feel that it's so important? I think it's got a lot of potential. I think the big thing is you're putting, you know, the power back into the, well, not even back into, you're putting it into the hands of young people. As was sort of said earlier, I mean, young people are the future. They've sort of got to have that capacity and that platform to engage in the issues that are relevant to them. And I think this is the potential for that. I guess, I mean, I came into this from a an interest in, say, social enterprise and turning concepts into working ideas from and using the whole business sort of principles from that, which is where I see, you know, this could eventually sort of go down. Putting power into the hands of young people is, is something that we often hear about in terms of rhetoric, but it's sometimes quite confronting for adults to actually hand over power to, to young people. What's been your impression of the way in which teachers, particularly, but other adults have responded to the program? H- has it sometimes been difficult or, or has it been fairly fairly positive in terms of teachers and others embracing the program? In parts of, I mean, Kenya and Tanzania and Zimbabwe, where I was, they were actually it was very much similar to the students. They were very excited about it. I guess the issues sort of um, communities are facing in different parts of that area of the world are very um, sort of far and in between from what, say, students might be facing here. Um, There can be similarities, but I think they sort of saw this as, okay, this is a potential solution to some of the issues we're facing. And it's what they wanted. I mean, they, you know, it's their children. Okay, let's now talk to the ones on the front line of the program, in, in essence, with Zoe and Max. Maybe we start with you, Zoe, and you could tell us a bit about what you've been doing and also why you got involved and what it actually means for you. So I got involved last year when 
I was I had this sudden interest in the sustainable development goals and the teacher got up in assembly and said here's a program about the sustainable development goals and it was kind of I felt like it was meant to be so I said I'm happy to do it I'll do whatever you want really and we kind of just dived into it we were all really excited and it gave us an opportunity to explore what we really enjoyed and what we wanted to be when we were older and we started off just trying to understand the program understand where it was heading understand the sustainable development goals because a lot of people didn't know what they were and we kind of just brainstormed about what do we care about in Canberra what do we want to see happen in our lifetime in the next five years and assigned people different sustainable development goals and we kind of we just researched and it happened very quickly because we were all so excited about it and we just researched and bounced ideas off each other and came up with this plan and it was kind of surreal to realize how easy it was to kind of narrow down those issues into feasible actions in our community. Could you tell us a bit about what you've just said of what you'd like to see in five years time? I'd like to see a more sustainable future and a more sustainable attitude towards how we develop in our in this country and how we are more planning for the future and thinking about not only what's going to happen within the term of the current people I guess but what's going to happen 100 200 300 years down the track and how that's going how we influence that Max how about you your thoughts on this and how you got involved and what you're thinking about the plan so far yeah yeah so um my story is a bit different to uh Zoe's where uh she was uh on it right from the right from the get-go uh I actually missed the initial court arms as it were and uh only realized when a bunch of friends were heading off to these clandestine lunchtime meetings and I followed them in and I immediately saw that wow this is actually really cool this is amazing my dad actually um he works with uh, sustainable de- development in Solomon Islands, and I'm like, whoa, this might have been what he was going on about. And yeah, it was it was brilliant. Um, we all got assigned different areas uh, to work with. I was uh, working with SDG number eleven, uh, sustainable uh, cities and communities. Yeah, it was it was helpful being able just to apply that filter to what you saw, and then once you were thinking about everything in the light of that sustainable development goal, uh, the problems really started to surface. But once you knew what those problems were, you could then actually start thinking of practical solutions to them rather than just being overwhelmed by the sheer number of different things which could be addressed, but you can't even begin to address. So Max, on that issue of sustainable communities, are there particular lessons that that you've started to learn that you'd like to share with others that that are really important if communities are going to be sustainable? Uh, I mean, definitely. How you build a city really dictates how well it functions. And I mean, you can... This is an analogy which I uh, read up about is a city is like a living organism, really, where you've got like roads as arteries or veins. um, And the, the way you build a city, as I said, it really impacts the health of the people and the way it can actually function. Um, a well-designed city leads to better living conditions for the people within it. Um, it leads to less money just being thrown away, uh, keeping up poorly built buildings, I suppose. And yeah, just when you're doing something like that, it, it shows how important it actually is. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Yes. I did some, some research a couple of years ago, Max, with children, primary school age children, about what makes strong and supportive communities. And one of the things they talked about a lot was the importance of footpaths. Um, and in lots of new suburbs in Canberra, for example, there aren't many footpaths. So for children who want to ride their bikes or move around, it's really difficult if communities are designed for cars rather than people and particularly for children. So I think that analogy of, you know, the, the, the community being like the body, but thinking about how we build it is a great one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, just recently I was uh, trying to drive from my place to a friend's place and um, I just reached the highway and I go, okay, that's the end of the bike path. Where to now? Do I, do I get hit by a truck or do I um, run on the, on the dirt? So yeah, it's definitely important. Yeah, it impacts every day. And Zoe, what about you? Which, which of the goals did you focus on? I focused on clean energy because I was really interested in climate action and how to tackle that. And I found that really interesting, especially in Canberra, where I feel like we're tackling it quite well. We're going to be 100% renewable by 2030, I think it is, which was really impressive. Um, But it was really interesting to learn about how energy is in the market, I suppose, and how the consumers control the demand, I guess. Not the demand, the supply, sorry. And we can make we can ensure that we have a clean that we have clean energy and a sustainable future if the people support it because that's the road to uh, supply is the demand. How do you think we're going on and communicating some of this stuff to people more generally? Do you think this program is helping you to do that? Yeah, I think it's helping us communicate and educate people more, but I think there is a lot of room to grow in that area because I feel like a lot of people want to do something, but they don't know how or they don't know what's happening or how they can tackle these issues, but they really want to. So I think that's a really big area that we can grow in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a deficit. Take us as the example when half of us signed up, we didn't even know what the sustainable development goals were. But yeah, the moment they told them to us, we immediately knew, wow, these things are very important. So Zoe and Max, you've obviously gained a great deal from being part of this program, but also contributed enormously to thinking around sustainable development. How do you see your future role in the program? Do, do you see yourselves as playing a role as mentors? Um, I would definitely love to be involved as a mentor because this is such a great opportunity and I would really like to continue this through high school, college and maybe beyond that. I'd really like to help educate more people about the Sustainable Development Goals and help improve the program and let it grow and adapt to the new generation and the new participants so I'd really like to help there. Yeah in in the short term um, I suppose we already do have the job title of mentors obviously having done it last year Um, so this year I'm effectively a fill-in teacher for our lunchtime group uh, helping people through whatever issues they may have uh, prodding them to do the surveys Um, but yeah it's, it's a really great experience because I suppose now I'm able to take a step back and sort of see what we were doing from the from the background a bit more um 
and then again, yeah, discuss that, talk about that. Um, but like when I was doing it, I saw the importance in just my sustainable development goal. But again, stepping back, you can say, wow, okay, all of these are very important. But in that different light, you know that things are actually happening, things are being worked upon and developed, and solutions are coming out. And uh, that that is amazing compared to like the initial feeling, well, these are important, but ah, what am I going to do? Ian said at the beginning that he decided he wouldn't stand in front of the classroom and talk about the SDGs in the way things might normally be taught, or at least traditionally be taught. What do you think about this style of learning and teaching? You're both learners and teachers, I think. Max, how do, how do you find this experience? I think it's amazing. I mean... Any student can tell you just sitting back in a class while the teacher drones at them is not the most effective way of learning. And being told, um, I suppose, vaguely what to do, being given a structure and then letting us fill in the blanks, I suppose, works incredibly well. I mean, I would not have picked up nearly as much if someone had just yelled it at me from the front of a classroom. And then uh, through doing my own research online in the community uh with parents, friends, uh, than I would have otherwise. What are your thoughts, Zoe, on this style of of learning and teaching? Um, I think it's definitely effective. We learnt so much and because we had to learn on the fly, I suppose, and we were thrown with these... We were given these big issues and tasks we didn't know how to tackle and we kind of just had to figure it out and we had to talk to people, talk to teachers, research, and it was so much more effective, like Max said, than a teacher talking to us because we had to come up with solutions for ourselves and figure it out as we go. And that is so much more valuable, I think. It's learning by doing, isn't it? Yeah. And teaching by doing. Back to you, Anne. It strikes me that a lot of the processes behind the Plan for the Planet program would probably be applicable beyond the S- just the SDGs. Do you think this is a model for translating other global policies at a globe, at a local level? Yeah, look, it's funny, Bob, that you say that because um, since we've been um, running the program, we've um, actually had a lum- number of organisations come up, including um, in the academic environment, and um, and saying, look, um, how did you go about that prioritisation process? How about the Pareto principle? That business planning process, it's very simple but um, very powerful. So, yes, we've been approached by a lot of different groups to um, actually take those principles and apply them in other settings. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. And the other interesting thing is we've been approached about approach uh, tackling the SDGs in other settings, such as um, older age groups, different generational groups, to use the same principles to actually tackle the SDGs um, and and come up with different approaches, um, different applications. Yes. And Holly, I'd like to ask your views on that question, particularly given your experience in Africa and other countries and so on. How would you see that being applied to other significant policy issues? Look, I think. Like policy in general, and then sort of you know bring touching on what Max said with education, there is it tends to be a sort of a one size fits all approach to any sort of issue. I think this is sort of the opportunity to tap into people from vastly different sort of, I mean walks of life essentially, um, with different backgrounds, different experiences, different needs, and to sort of tap into their ideas or um, their approaches to living and whatnot and work from that. Holly, one of the things that I'm really interested in is intergenerational relationships 
intergenerational dialogue on a, on a range of issues. And dialogue sounds very formal. It's really around relationships. How do you see this program or do you see this program as perhaps one tool of really linking people together across age groups? You know, we often silo young people into schools, older people into their professions, whereas this program seems to be an opportunity to break some of that down and for us to talk as a community, regardless of our age. Do you see potential for this program in that way of fostering that kind of conversation? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I mean, it's not just intergenerational, it's cross-cultural. It's just got that sort of collaborative sort of nature about it. And yeah. a final question to, to each of you, perhaps. If there was one thing in Australia that you think we need to do, that you think we need to change in order to help to progress the SDGs and you've only got one thing, it's an almost impossible question to answer, but what's the thing that you think really needs to happen? Uh, Ian, perhaps we can start with you. Sure. Look, I think the most powerful thing is, in fact, what um, Zoe was saying and Max was saying. It's a planning approach, an integrated planning approach to the SDGs that tackles them all, doesn't um, say they're too hard and can't be linked up and actually puts together a long-term, as Zoe was saying, way of addressing the SDGs way beyond the um, 2030 agenda. So Holly, what's the what's the one thing that you think we need to do? Or maybe the one message? I think this is the uh, worst question to ask to someone that's incredibly indecisive. <laughs> um, look, I would probably say, and I'd, maybe this is a bit cliche, but I think what we really actually need is um, an understanding sort of approach and mindset. I think, you know, so, sort of going back to this whole, a lot of approaches to policy and to current issues is this one-size-fits-all approach. We really need that understanding nature of, you know, some people face barriers that you might not and to sort of accept that and see, okay, how can I be an ally? What can we do next? Zoe, is there is there a, a take-home message that you'd like to leave us with? I think collaboration between people everywhere is really important, especially across generations and across countries and cultures because everyone, like Holly said, faces a different challenge. And if we have a common goal and an understanding to collaborate... And if we if we collaborate with a common goal across the differences, we can understand how to come around them because everyone has a specific perspective on the world and no two are the same and we can use that to our advantage and we shouldn't use it we shouldn't see it as a disadvantage. We should see it as the solution to our problems. Fantastic. Thanks, Zoe. Holly, did you want to come in there? Yeah, no, I was just sitting there being like, yes, thumbs up. <laughs> um, I think we all were. It's radio, it's podcast rather, but we were all thumbs up on that. Yeah, no, honestly, I think the key I sort of took away from that is it's all a matter of perspective. And yeah, collaboration is absolutely key. There's and so much to be done. Max, the, the final message falls to you. Oh, what what would go. you like to leave us with? Um, I was just going to say it's this, this is for the other end of the spectrum, the people who may be contributing to the problem. And it's, I suppose, really distinct before you act because one thing that always seems to cause a lot of problems is people doing something for the short-term monetary benefit. They build some coal plant because it will net them a billion dollars within 10 years, but it will also contribute... 25 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. Um, just ensuring that you really think about the implications of their actions and rather thinking for the, the four-year term, the four, three year term or uh, just 
before the end of my job are what can I do that will make things better for the people who are going to come after me instead of what can I do to make my life better but everyone else's worse? I think that's a great message to leave everyone with at the end of this podcast. I want to thank all four of you for coming in to, to talk to us about the program. Um, Ian, Holly, Zoe and Max, thank you so much. It's an incredibly exciting program and one that really has the potential to make a change. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, stay with us for part three when Bob and I will come back and continue to have a conversation, have a bit of a chat about some of your comments. Well, welcome back. I found that quite fascinating. One thing I did enjoy was how positive our colleagues were when they spoke about the program. Uh, The SDGs are really quite a complex field and yet they've managed to break it down and make it seem somehow manageable. And I enjoyed their enthusiasm. What did you think, Sharon? Yeah, I thought thought that was a great conversation, Bob. Really fascinating. And what a fantastic program. I think the way Ian has approached this is really very interesting. Um, You know, coming at it as he has um, from a business perspective and using sort of business concepts to to think differently about the SDGs. But I thought Holly, um, Zoe and Max were just so powerful in the way they spoke about this. Um, you know, the point that Holly was making about the importance of, of understanding difference and where different people come from as we approach development issues. And both Zoe and Max just incredible in terms of the insights that they have and the thinking, the deep thinking that they've done around the SDGs and the way in which they're able to articulate that. I think they're incredibly powerful ambassadors for the program. I think so and it's great to feel that those people are in charge of our future in that sense. Also great that they have this ambition, they have this enthusiasm for the program and also they seem to me to be very practical. In my time when I was serving overseas as a diplomat I used to think about some of this stuff. How practical was our aid program? and particularly working on aspects such as you're focusing on. I think it was poverty reduction and the role of women and gender equality and how that can feed into the uh, achievement of the SDGs. So I thought this is really a way to break it down, to get practical bits and start to implement them well. Yes, yeah, I think there is that very strong practical component to this that that is really about making a difference. You know, And I think, you know, when we, when we think about how and why we might engage young people in these issues, we often think about the future, about the fact that they're the leaders of the future, the future's in their hands. And of course, that's all true. But I think what we saw from Zoe and Max and Holly today is that young people are also the present. You know, they have incredible insights to contribute, you know, thoughtful reflection to contribute in the here and now. And I think these programs are just so important that create spaces for young people to engage in some of the big issues in the debate of our time. So great stuff. Great stuff indeed. And I must say, as they were talking, I was trying to reflect on how do you actually take forward policy in this space? Just at what point does this say the Australian government or the state government come into this process? Because it seems to me to have been very well driven uh, the way they've gone ahead about it. I think Ian's model and that business model seems to have added a great, uh, an effective degree of simplicity that appeals to a lot of people. It has a way of communicating the essence of the issues very well. And part of me sort of feels there's a role for government here. And part of me sort of feels, well, maybe we shouldn't rush in there. Maybe this sort of, you know, driven the way it is with infectious enthusiasm, 
by the that generation of students and others maybe is a better way to go. So, Bob, I think this is one of those conversations that it would be great to come back to in 12 months or so when the program's a little bit further down the track and we can hear what's happened, whether they have expanded out to other countries, whether they have got buy-in from government at national or no- local levels. So maybe there'll be a phase two where we where we come back and hear from, from Ian and, and perhaps also from, from Zoe, Max and Holly again. But we'd really like to hear your views um, to our listeners out there about anything that we discussed today. So please let us know what your thoughts are on the program and on the conversation that we've just had. We're on Facebook as Asia Pacific Policy Society and on Twitter as Apps Policy Forum or you can email us podcast at policyforum.net. We really enjoy getting your comments, so keep them coming in. And let's have a look at some of the recent comments. On our podcast, Diving Into Diversity, Maya Bandari chatted to a pilot, a psychologist and a public servant about inclusion in the public sector. In response, we received a comment from Paul Mugambi. Paul said, great episode, especially areas on intersectionality and gender. What are the policy measures being taken to ensure persons with disabilities in Australia achieve maximum participation in the public service? Employment data shows that they are at 2%. Bob, what do you think of Paul's comment? My understanding is that people in the public service do try hard to uh, get maximum participation with people from disabilities. And I can think of some examples in my own career in the public service. But honestly, I don't know to what extent they are making progress. 2%, 2%, is that reflective of where the disability population is and the population more generally? Uh, I'd like to think the public service remains strongly committed to employing people with disabilities, but I'm really not up to date with how it is just recently. Yeah, Bob, I think Paul's question, or Paul's comment rather, is is a really important one in terms of encouraging us to keep thinking about the different groups within society who face all kinds of barriers um, and who need to think about accessing employment, you know, moving on in their career, gaining an education, and to be able to respond to the challenges that they're facing and to the barriers that they're facing that most of us never even have to think about. And I think when it comes to issues around um, employment, for example, there are the formal structures. And my sense is the Australian Public Service actually does very well in terms of addressing some of those formal issues and the barriers that confront people. But there are also the informal barriers that are sometimes even more powerful and they may be attitudinal, Um, and they're they're often subconscious. I think we all carry with us our assumptions about particular individuals, particular groups of people, and they're often very, very deeply ingrained. And I think they're the things that we really need to be thinking about and confronting and working through um, if we're going to have a much more inclusive society. And I guess those issues can never be addressed unless we're hearing directly from the challenges that, for example, face women or that face people living with a disability understanding that each of those people are individuals and they face different issues themselves from one another. So complex issues. Very well put. Complex issues indeed. And we're talking about culture, culture of individuals, culture of organisations, culture of the Australian Public Service, which is proud of its culture and its ethos and its ethics and all of that, and correctly so. But you're right, there's a need for each of us to reflect on just how well we're doing in our individual lives and in our organisations, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's right. 
And on a, a different issue, Bob, on Policy Forum, there was a piece from Sangung Hong entitled Nuclear-Free Korea Will Struggle for Energy. And this has been getting quite a few comments coming in. On Twitter, Andrew said, perhaps I'm unreasonably optimistic, which would be unlikely for me. <laughs> but I feel that sometime soon there will be a general reappraisal at sufficiently high levels of the value and necessity of nuclear power for what it provides, ultra-low carbon, reliable baseload generation. Meanwhile, G.R.L. Cohen has written, one of the things that, Kore- that the Korean public should be advised of is the strength of the voice of natural gas in government, in, natu- in, in government deliberations. If it is allowed to ventriloquise as, voice, as the voice on environmentalism and of that same public, they lose and the government wins. Bob, what do you make of those comments? Well, goodness me, that really makes me sit up and take, pay attention here. Um, I think when I think of nuclear power and nuclear energy, uh, I think in Australia we're often sort of hindered in our views. Uh, so many countries around the world have gone the nuclear option, uh, nuclear power station. We think of China, Japan and, and off into Europe and India and even Indonesia I know is thinking of getting into nuclear power at some stage. Whether that actually happens is entirely another matter. And some nations such as Germany are now backing out of nuclear power. I think while some of those points are well made, I still think most of us feel that the the fundamental question is what do you do with the radioactive waste and how is that disposed of? And I don't think most people have felt that that has been, if it has been adequately addressed or explained, then I think we haven't heard about it. So I think that's a whole, whole debate that we have in Australia. As for the Koreans, I think uh, they're a very exposed situation. They obviously have to import fuel of all all kinds. I think that um, getting out of nuclear into solar and other forms of um, renewable energy generation is certainly a good option for them. Uh, And I think it's a very hard balance to strike between it all. Uh, On the final comment about um, natural gas, I think... um, we have to see this as a transition. Uh, we have coal, we have uh, forms of gas, uh, and we're moving away from those. So certainly natural gas is to, is to be preferred to coal in terms of emissions intensity and all the rest of it, and for energy generation. But really, um, a transition needs to be made. And so it's a question of selecting which of those, what's the right balance of energy that you've got available to you at the least cost that's reliable. Bit of the same problem we're facing in Australia right now with the National Energy Guarantee about to be discussed. Yeah, they're huge issues for, I think, every country in the world and, of course, issues that are directly related to the Sustainable Development Goals and the way we think about our future. Absolutely. So thank you once again to everyone who commented and please keep sending those comments in. That's all from us for now, but we'll be back again next week for more. Talk to you then. Thank you. Great talking to you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.